Hello, movie friends, and welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. In today's episode, we're going to break down Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners. This came out in 2013, directed by Denis Villeneuve, written by Aaron Guzikowski. Had one Oscar nomination for Roger Deakins' best cinematography. I think it's one, it's of, his, one of his 15th total. Yeah. I think it was his 12th at the time. Yeah. IMDb has this movie at an 8.1 and is currently number 168 on the IMDb all-time user rating list. Rotten Tomatoes, it is an 81% critic score. Kind of low. 87% audience score. A little better. Budget of $46 million. This film grossed $122 million globally. Composed music by Johan Johansson. This film also includes two Oscar winners, Melissa Leo and Viola Davis, as well as three Oscar nominees, Hugh Jackman, <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal, and Terrence Howard. The rest of the cast, we also have... Paul Dano. <laughs> Paul Dano. Let me get to the cast. I'm just so excited. <laughs> Maria, I had a Coke. I'm literally... I literally <laughs> the rest of the cast... Paul Dano! <laughs> Paul Dano. That's actually how he says his last name. I, we saw it in a recent interview where everyone says Dano. We've always said Dano, but now it's it's actually Dano. Maria Bello, Dylan Minit, Minette, Aaron Garismacic, Zoe Sol. And that rounds out the rest of the cast. And what a terrific movie. This is one of my favorite Denis Villeneuve films, which is kind of hard to place in his filmography because he's just made nothing but bangers, nothing but hits. He's one of those filmmakers who's got an immaculate record. I trust a guy with an immaculate record. I have an immaculate record. Very few few filmmakers actually have that, I would say, prestige of not making ever a bad movie of ever in their entire careers. They're not even making a medium movie. Not even a lukewarm movie. They're all great. You could say Enemy is like lowest on his rankings if that's what you want to put there. And that's a terrific film or Incendies is a really great target. Yeah, on Sunday. Yeah. It's terrific. And he broke out with On Sunday. It was the best foreign, best nominated picture for the foreign language film that year. It didn't win the Oscar for a foreign language film, but it was nominated. And that really put him on the map in America. That's that, where he met Roger Deakins. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't, I can't talk. <laughs> but, yeah, that's how they met. <laughs> they probably met They probably met at some, like, Oscars luncheon or something. And they were probably like, oh, I love your work. I love your work. And Deakins said that he wanted to – he expressed that he wanted to work with Denis Villeneuve. And Villeneuve was like, well, guess what? I got this dope script on me. It's just so he sent him prisoners. Terrific filmmaking from every aspect of the production, not – Not to mention, obviously, terrific performances. Probably career best from Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman, as well as the rest of the cast is the ensemble's terrific. I mean, Viola Davis is in here. Melissa Leo, just great, great actors and actresses. Terrence Howard's awesome. But the cinematography is really special. The lighting is special. And, you you know, Roger Deakins has had such a legendary career, and he's made so many different kinds of movies. Like, if you recently compare his films, if you put Prisoners up against something like Blade Runner 2049, shot very differently, lit very differently. You could say that Blade Runner 2049 has maybe some of the best lighting you've seen this century or best lighting in sci-fi film. Skyfi, Skyfall too. Exactly, yeah. yeah, absolutely. But the thing with Prisoners is his use of lighting and lack of lighting is what makes it so special. Same thing with like his film Assassination of Jesse James that he shot. Like The lack of lighting or using lighting in the right spots and right places is really what makes it seem so special and artistic compared to something like Blade Runner, which is obviously a sci-fi mega blockbuster movie. You can have every kind of uh, piece of equipment in huge budget at All the money arsenal. He needs. Exactly. Yeah. So like you, you can do pretty much everything, anything you want with Blade Runner 2049. Budget of $46 million, you got to get a little more creative. And this is one of his earlier films where he was started shooting digitally and he was using the Aria Alexa, 
in this film. He also used it on Skyfall the year before in 2012. He was still shooting film, depending on the project. The Coen brothers were still shooting on film with him for their last couple of collaborations. But Deakins was beginning to experiment with the Ari camera, and he Ari actually sent him cameras, prototypes, while they were developing them and getting tips from him. And he was basically playing around with these amazing high-format digital cameras. Yeah, before, that was a while ago. Yeah, before anyone else. But, I mean, this movie's 10 years old. Yeah. This is a long time ago. So he uh, he knows the Ari camera system probably better than anyone outside of the actual Ari company. <laughs> they literally would send him free cameras. And I'm always a fan of shooting on film over digital, but Deacons is someone who really makes exceptional imagery and visuals with digital cinematography because of his lighting techniques and his camera techniques. And he, I, I think with him, because now he favors digital, and he said that he would he prefer, prefers that over, over film, he'll shoot film still if, if the director wants it, obviously. He's not going to tell the Coen brothers, no, we're not shooting on film if they want to shoot on film, you know what I mean? But Prisoners was an early example as well as Skyfall of showing just how powerful the imagery can be with the digital camera, with the lighting, with using LEDs. He comes up with really interesting ways of lighting scenes that you won't see on camera. But like, for example, the scene where Alex takes the dog for a walk and Hugh Jackman follows him. The way they lit that scene, because if you look at it, there's this beautiful soft light on their faces. Just very warm, but very balanced. And the way he did this is he and his crew built this ring light circle. It's like this giant wooden circle with Edison bulbs all over it. And that, and they just basically led the actors wa walking, leading them with that pointed at them the whole time. And it creates this beautiful, warm light. He's able to really experiment with the lighting techniques that he's always wanted to use while still exposing properly to get the entire image in in the screen without without underexposing anything. And so this is an example where he can really fly and flourish with his visual talents, which are probably the best of all time with digital camera work. The cinematography and the lighting in this movie, it's so purposeful. It's done on purpose. A lot of people, when they talk about this movie, if people didn't like it, they talk about it being dim or bland and dark. You can't see anything. But that's really done by design to bring the thematic elements from the story into the film, which is what great cinematographers like Denis Villeneuve can do. He, With this movie, he really creates his own atmosphere from the exteriors to the interiors. I mean, all the interiors in this movie, they're all warm lit, as well as the houses. It feels like Practical. what, what a, yeah. a house looks like when you're walking. Like the lighting, pretty much all the lighting you're seeing for the majority on the interiors of the houses, especially the first act of the film before the kidnapping takes place. You're seeing the fixtures where the light's coming from. He's got some lights coming in from the distance. And it just looks like something from diffuse. Home Depot. Yeah, but yeah. you know, whether he's putting in like more powerful bulbs inside actual light fixtures, like the gas station, he put in 60 watt bulbs inside the, the under where the the pumps under are under the roof so under the yeah. roof of the pumps that's all lighting that deacons put in as well as little things like on the side of the building of the gas station he put those tube leds on the top just to add some more lighting there as well as something creative and then really just kind of bringing some soft diffused light in front of the characters to get this brilliant lighting as well as lighting up the billboard that's one of my favorite shots or one of my favorite most well-lit shots in the entire movie is that gas station sequence so it doesn't have to be you need a million lights in the the most creative and artistic thing. Sometimes it's just simplicity is best, especially with this movie. Yeah, and he uses light minimally. Like in front of some of the houses during some of the night scenes, he'll put just like lawn lights in front of trees just to add some texture and some detail to the scene. Otherwise, they would be would they would be super underexposed and silhouetted. You wouldn't really be able to make them out. So he did a really amazing job. And I think it's just been 
inspirational for so many other DPs after this film, where when you look the way the houses are lit at nighttime, and I'm not talking just interiors, but the exteriors, they're subtle. Some people, they like to show off, if they have a nice house, they'll put lights on their yard and stuff. So he kind of created that feeling and aesthetic with the night sequences, because one of my favorite parts about this film, and what really sets it apart from so many others in the crime genre, in the kidnapping genre, what have you, is the the town just feels like a town that you grew up in. That it's, it feels like a town we grew up in, especially the neighborhoods yeah, and the houses. It literally looks like the neighborhood one of our brothers lives in. You know what I mean? And they didn't choose like a city. They didn't choose a metropolitan area. They didn't choose L.A. The writer originally wrote this to be set in a Boston suburb because the writer is from Brockton, Massachusetts. So he wanted something similar to that. But I think that the production in Villeneuve chose uh, Pittsburgh. And I think that the Pittsburgh setting is just fantastic. But it just feels like a real place. It doesn't feel like it's a movie set. Just like for the sequence where the girls are missing it for the first time and everybody's running around the neighborhood trying to find them, trying to catch a clue or see if a neighbor saw them. And every these three guys are running throughout the neighborhood. It, I felt like it reminded me of being a kid running around my neighborhood. And that's what one of the strengths of the film is the setting. And Villeneuve really understood that, setting it in this specific location in this suburb, probably very far from the next major city, if it's near Pittsburgh or or what have you. It's just secluded, and it just feels like a normal American town, not Hollywoodized. And the imagery that Deacons picks up is really terrific. He used master prime lenses with the Ari Alexa. Now, a prime lens is a fixed focal length. It's not a zoom lens or anything like that, and the master primes that are developed by Ari are just like... The sickest lenses ever. They're very fast, very clean. There's almost no distortion. They're terrific for low light, which is essential for filming this movie because a lot of sequences have very minimal light. And, and again, it's part of the characters and part of the story is the low light situations, especially with Loki in his first opening sequences when he's doing a lot of detecting. You're really only seeing what Loki can see, like the gas station to go back to. It's, I think it might be my favorite scene in the whole movie is the gas it's station. It's a great sequence. Up there. Yeah. It's so well made. Because we can't even see Loki's face this entire scene. It's so dark for the majority of it until he has his flashlight on. And all we're focused on is what he's seeing and what he can look at. I think it's a really remarkable reveal for a character, especially an antagonist kind of character in terms of Alex. Because we've seen Alex from behind a few shots. We saw his hands peeking out from those little curtains on the nook on top of the, of the RV. And then the first time we finally see his face is when Loki's pointing a flashlight directly at him. And that it's such a great way to reveal the character who's such an integral part of the film. Because obviously we got Loki's reveal in the Chinese restaurant. We got a sense for who he was within a minute. They did a really great job with character building just in that one minute of dialogue. But showcasing who's presumed to be an antagonist for the film, the way Deacons filmed it was like it was like it was a villain reveal almost. You know what I mean? Keeping him in darkness, not showing him clearly... And then the reveal is, bam, a flashlight right in his face. He's got a worrying kind of look. He looks like someone who might do something harmful to children. And I thought it was just brilliant to show that. It kind of put the audience on this false scent for Alex immediately, I would say. There are a lot of false scents in this movie yeah. because this movie has so many thematic elements that have to do with muzzles and muzzes. Ma- oh, sorry. Mazes and puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> Puzzles and mazes, mazes and puzzles. And Not James mu- just had a stroke. <laughs> this is my second one in two days. <laughs> Yesterday you were messing up. Mazes and puzzles, which we'll talk more about. But I want to stay on the cinematography since we're talking about it. And I, again, I love how you brought up the Chinese restaurant, Loki's 
introduction to the film on Thanksgiving. Clearly, he's got no family, no one to be with at this time. He's at Chinese restaurant on Thanksgiving versus the families and the friends who are spending Thanksgiving together inside. And again, warm interior lighting on both these sequences, both these scenes. Next time you watch it, just you're going to pick up on it constantly. And some things I love that Deacons does in the first act of this movie with the cinematography, with the blocking of the characters and framing. Well, first of all, every frame of this movie is Brilliant, very well balanced, precise, and yeah. done with so much intention and meaning. But in the first act, a lot of the shots we have of characters are with like their families, with couples, with multiple people per shot. There's really not many one shots of our leads besides obviously Detective Loki. Loki. Yeah. But the family members, whether it's Keller with his son, Keller with the friends, the family, the Thanksgivings, the, all these sequences, they're shot in two shots, three shot, four shot, camera balance. I mean, camera uh, setups with the actors and characters. And then we slowly progress when there's like that big tonal shift from the girls missing at Thanksgiving after that great tree shot, which we definitely have to talk the about. The push-in, man. The tree shot might be one of the best shots in the whole movie. After that, the tone really shifts because the girls are now missing and then we get just a change of atmosphere, and then we get a lot more isolated character shots, whether they're in the frame by themselves or just isolated from the other characters, whether they're outside of a room while someone else is in a room or inside a window while somebody else is outside a window in a house, outside of a house, inside a car, outside of a car. So a lot of characters just become more isolated as they're all being trapped inside their own puzzles and mazes inside of their head, whether it's physical or a mental prison they're trapping themselves inside of, which is really fascinating. And then we, he, they experiment a lot with the high angle shots low angle shots there's some great ones inside like the torture bathroom high angle shots of alex or low angle shots of keller same thing with loki and his character and his progression through the story De depending on if it's a high angle shot or low angle shot you're showing strength with a character or weakness with a character or, or, or some kind of element like that. If it's a high angle shot of like play, yeah. Alex looking down on Alex as he's being abused and beaten and tortured. He's a very weak character at this point. He has no power versus looking up at Keller from a low angle shot. The power is in his hands. He's got so much control in the situation. My favorite shot is there's a sh the reveal of the RV and Denis and Deacons do this terrific. They strap the camera to the back right taillight of the RV and it's like... This common shot we see in films where they'll just the headlights, the the taillights on like the left side of the frame, and then the right side, right half of the frame is open. And we're seeing you know the, whatever we're driving by. You see it a thousand times. But what they did was they set that sh they did that shot, and then they then they pan to the right, looking at the houses, and it's just it's that camera movement. You never you've never seen the pan start from the taillight strapped like gripped onto a car. That I'm, I can't believe I can't remember seeing that before in any other film and it created this voyeuristic feeling of what is going on with this rv is this rv watching houses is are they hunting for someone that's probably my favorite shot of the film because it elicited a really intriguing response emotionally from me and just trying to figure out what exactly is going on so everything in this film is filmed with intention also they decided to use the 1.85 to 1 uh, aspect ratio which basically fills up the entire frame of a widescreen TV. And so it's not going to be like anamorphic super widescreen. It's not going to have the bars, black bars on top and bottom of the frame. Uh, I think that Denis and Deacons chose to film it in that aspect ratio, which is the only film they've done in that ratio purposefully because it kind of looks almost like a box. It's not a quite a one-one box ratio that we've seen in a few recent films like The Lighthouse and films like that. 
Ghost is another notable one. But I think that because it fills the entire frame of like uh, a television or a movie theater screen, it would fill the entire ratio of like what the actual physical screen is. They did that on purpose, and it feels like it's the entire all the images are in a prison. And I get that this boxy feeling from that kind of aspect ratio that really ties into the theme of the film. And the cinematography going further into prisons. Obviously, the synopsis of this film, what is it about? It's about these two children, these two girls who go missing on Thanksgiving. They are kidnapped. And we're following a detective played by Jake Gyllenhaal, Detective Loki, and the father of one of the children, Keller Dover, who will stop at nothing to try to find these two missing children and find the answers to the kidnapping, who the kidnapper is, but taking their own paths and using their own beliefs, personal beliefs, philosophical beliefs, religious beliefs, and methods of their professions and their their backgrounds, whether it's Loki being a detective or Keller being what he thinks is the most prepared person alive for any kind of disaster. A survivalist, what, yeah. What routes they take to try to find answers and try to find the children it's really incredible because obviously if you're listening to this episode, you've probably seen this movie. If you haven't, I recommend going to watch it because we're going to really start spoiling stuff very soon in the next few minutes. So if you haven't seen Prisoners, go watch it. Um, what, what did we see? It was on Netflix, right? Netflix. It's been on Netflix for a few years now. Yeah. That's one of their little diamonds in the roughs they got for sure for movies. I'm sure they want to hold on to that one. So go watch Prisoners if you haven't seen it before you continue this episode because we don't want to spoil too much for you. We've kind of just been talking about production stuff until this point, but now let's get more into the how the production stuff and the cinematography ties into the plot. We'll go through the entire movie now, which is going to be so much fun. We've been dying to do a full episode on Prisoners. But back to what you just talked about with prisons, the aspect ratio making the audience feel like you're watching these characters stuck inside of a prison. The cinematography ties into these characters in their own prisons because it's called Prisoners, this film. It's a kidnapping story, but it's also about the prisons that we trap ourselves in or that we're already trapped in and whether or not we can get out of their prisons, out of these prisons, if there even is an escape, whether it's a physical prison like there are multiple in this film, whether it's the girls or Keller Dover at the end of the film or even Alex Jones in the torture chamber shower prison or the prison of Keller's apartments or the mental prisons these characters place themselves in, whether it's uh, Keller Dover's wife with the medication, she's using prescription drugs, she's imprisoning herself in this lucid state to not have to feel anything or Keller's prison of his inability to protect his children and Loki's prison and his inability to find these children his prison you could say is his the institution of his career of being a detective his squad car is a prison in a lot of ways is not being able to solve the case you know and then also Bob Taylor is in a mental prison of that of his own building from his past trauma same thing with Alex being in this prison of his mind being unable, again, it's said multiple times he has the IQ of a 10-year-old. He hasn't been able to emotionally or mentally develop since being a child. So he is stuck like in a, in, in a prison himself as well. And there's so many questions about this movie. Like Bob Taylor, who the hell is this character? Bob Taylor, played by David Desmalchian, who's now a Denis Villeneuve regular. He was just in Dune. He's in Chris Nolan, some of his movies as well, but he's a great character actor, supporting character. But we'll get into, I want to get to him a little later on. But that was a question that I asked to the Instagram of our story. I asked, What are your biggest questions for prisoners? One of them is, 
who like who is Bob Taylor and why is that character here? And we'll, we'll, it's a common question we get all the time. We'll get yeah. to that because if you're not paying attention too closely, which is easy to do because this is a complex film because not only are the characters put themselves put being put inside mazes and puzzles to try to solve this mystery, the audience is being put inside mazes and puzzles. And I love this film so much because of the mystery surrounding it. It's not a simple plot. It's complex as well as I really adore movies that the most important part of the film and the most explosive parts of the film are the last couple shots, which the last scene of this movie you could say is the most explosive in the movie. And it's an absolutely incredible ending. It's very ambiguous as well. Absolutely. I love the ambiguous endings. Uh, do you want to get into characters and story? Or we could start answering questions and going through questions. What do you think? How about we'll save questions for a little later on as we okay. get through the story. How about we'll, you want to do characters and then I would love to talk about puzzles and mazes and labyrinths and how it ties into each character. Yeah, let's start with let's start with Keller Dover, who uh, it's probably the most ironic character we've seen in recent memory. What makes Keller such an ironic character is he is uh, a survivalist. He is prepared for every disaster imaginable. His basement is littered in, with shelves of things that you would need to survive anything, whether it be a like nuclear attack or a flood or a hurricane, whatever. He he is prepared, and he, sp he spends his entire life with this mindset of, Whatever happens, whatever crazy disaster happens, whatever calamity I'm faced with, I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to get through it. I'm gonna be hand, able to handle it. I'll be able to protect my family. And it's just such an ironic thing for this character, whose entire life and philosophy is about survivalism and being prepared. He's unable to protect his daughter from being kidnapped, and he's unable to to save her and find her. He's he's the ultimate survivalist the ultimate protector but he lose he he fails at that mission and that job and that's why he's going through so much emotional turmoil in the film it's really he's he's his biggest flaw i would say is that he's been preparing for the wrong kind of disaster he's been preparing for some crazy thing to happen a terrorist attack he's been preparing for food running out whatever and he's never he he's never prepared for uh, the disaster of facing, you know, an evil person or someone, literally just one person trying to harm his family. And I think that's why he's kind of careless because he is, ironically, he's careless with the kids in Thanksgiving. He's like, they keep, they ask to go leave the house twice. At first, he's like, ask your, ask your brother. And then again, they say, if you, if brother says it's okay and he'll go with you, then go ahead. But he didn't check to see if this, his son went with his daughter. For someone who's always so prepared for everything, he didn't even look into that because he didn't expect anything like this to happen because there wasn't a hurricane, because there wasn't a forest fire, because there wasn't a huge emergency. He thinks his family's safe. So that's the great irony of the character is he's always prepared for the wrong kind of disaster. But also being prepared save, potentially saves his life by the end of the film because you know, when his daughter's like, I can't find my watch, the, I mean, my whistle, the <laughs> necklace, the necklace, it's just a wrong word. When the, ne the whistle, the necklace whistle um, in the opening of the film at Thanksgiving, she's, he says that it's probably at the house. And so she's going to go back. Obviously, she goes back to the house to get the whistle and walks by the RV again because we realize, we find out by the end of the film when he's finally inside, underneath the house, inside the tunnel mazes, you could say, which we don't even really actually see mazes metaphysically. Physically, we actually just see them on a, uh, a metaphorical level. When he's down in the tunnel, 
he sees the whistle that is his daughter's that she went to the house. So she actually went and got the whistle with her friend. And that's when they were probably kidnapped after she had the whistle necklace and probably good thing that was in there because if there, if she didn't get the whistle, if he didn't prepare his daughter to always wear that whistle, even though it's a little much, like you have to always wear a whistle. <laughs> <laughs> now everyone's just being tracked on smartphones <laughs> by their parents. Um, he never would have been able to hopefully get Loki's attention at the end of the film. Oh, yeah, yeah. With the whistle. So technically, so like in a lot of ways, he was never, he's not fully pre- prepared for everything to happen. Like I think you're absolutely right with the emergencies, but also being overly prepared did save his life potentially by the end of the story. And in a lot of ways, so what I love about this film is that Denis Villeneuve and the writer, they give you every bit of information you need about the characters and about the plot. But it's just a matter of deciphering that. It's kind of like its own little mystery, the, the film. And it's, there's nuggets of little information. I love how his characters aren't just spelling things out for us. And so Keller is an example of his behavior and his personality and his, this philosophy. It's all It all stems from a traumatic past of his father who committed suicide. So it's not talked about in the film, but Loki... He's getting suspicious about Keller, and he thinks that he's responsible for Alex's disappearance. He starts like looking into Hel- Keller, and he finds an old article in an old newspaper article that says Detective Loki. He, he finds this article that reads Keller's father William Dover died. He committed suicide. So the headline is Gratifer guard commits suicide in home. So his father was a prison guard. Pennsylvania State Police Correction Officer was found dead Monday morning in an, in his con- Conyers apartment. Apparently, a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. The correction officer, William Dover, 46 years old, was found by his wife, Mary, and his teenage son in their apartment at Campella Street. No suicide note was found, the police said. Officials say that where the prison where Mr. Dover had worked for the past 14 years declined to comment. So, Keller's father committed suicide with no explanation. And so, in a way, Keller, being a teenage kid, felt that his, his father abandoned him. And didn't he? He's not there to protect him for the rest of his life, and so that's probably what instilled this kind of extreme personality of being a protector to his family as an adult, as well as being a sober alcoholic. It's just mm-hmm. mentioned with a one-off line when Loki is tracking Keller because Alex Jones is missing, and he suspects that Keller's up to something, doing his own investigating, kind of being a vigilante. Those are his assumptions, and he's tracking Keller in the morning to that liquor store, and Keller's just using the liquor store as a place to park his truck while he walks over to his apartment building to start torturing Alex for the day, basically. And <laughs> Another day at work! Checking time in! Oh, it's a tough day. Clock in, clock out! Tough day at the office today. <laughs> it's messed up. It's messed up. This is just jokes everybody <laughs> don't cancel us <laughs> and then unfortunately for loki the truck behind him honks keller sees him realizes who it is realizes what's happening goes inside gets a bottle of booze bottle of whiskey or something then goes to see loki and it's he's a really clever guy multiple situations he is able to lie off what he's doing to get away with the the kidnapping that he's committed to alex jones for the time being temporarily until loki later on in the third act of the film finds alex jones screaming for help by himself in the apartment complex because he thinks keller dover is going there after one of the girls shows up i know where you're going i know where you're going <laughs> and so he goes inside the squad car of loki's squad car and they're talking back and forth, and he says, 
he's like, what are you doing here? He's like, haven't had a drink in, what is it, nine and a half years and might as well start right now. So this is the first time he's had a drink in almost 10 years. So he's clearly a sober alcoholic, which also probably explains why he's become such a devout Catholic because when you're in the program in AA, giving yourself up to a higher power, whether it's with Christianity or some other religion, that's one of the main steps of becoming sober in the program in AA is giving yourself up to that higher power and letting yourself go and just kind of enveloping yourself into faith of somebody of something else and that's probably in my assumption why he's so devout such a devout catholic and then throughout the course of the film he's constantly at battles with his faith because of what he's doing is obviously a sin and he will go to hell eventually if he uh, commits murder with Alex Jones. He he repents multiple times. He uh, prays multiple times. But still, I mean, towards the end of the film, when he says like, "I think we're pretty much done here," before Alex finally says something about the maze, you can assume that he was about to kill Alex. Yeah, there's there's a lot of praying in this film by Keller. The film opens with him saying the Our Father prayer while hunting with his son. He prays a couple times in the middle of the film. Then he prays when he's in the bottom of the pit. When he's stuck to, trapped down there by Holly and he prays that God will protect his daughter. So there is quite a lot of praying and his religion is – it pours and seeps through him as a character. And the character of the, – the name Keller actually is a German word for basement. So well, I didn't know there that. Are, and there are a couple of basements seen in the film. Obviously, Keller's, which is full of all the survival guy, supplies. So all the, all the names in the movie, they have very specific meanings and – and I love when writers can correlate an uh, idea or a theme within a name of a character. really sets the, st- the tone for who that character is. And I think that Loki also has a lot of meaning to it. But we'll get to Loki when we're, when we're there. But I think that this could be Hugh Jackman's best performance. I used to say it was The Prestige because The Prestige is a very complex character that he plays. He plays two people in The Prestige yeah. too. Yes, uh, but so I would say that he, the emotional gravity that he hits in this film is really impressive. He really sells it, and he impressed me a lot. I remember when I first saw this, I was like, wow, this guy, he is a legit actor, and he's up there. I thought it was surprising that he didn't get a nom- nomination for Best Lead Actor in this film. His American accent is solid, but he really, the emotional stakes holding back tears holding back his emotions you can tell he played he's playing Hugh Jackman's playing a man who is trying to not show his emotions and trying to prevent himself from crying and trying to stay strong and stop himself from breaking down and you can see that in his performance like he's about to cross that line so many times in the film but he prevents himself every time Hugh Jackman had so much has so much control of his physicality and of his emotions. I thought it was a pitch-perfect performance in this role. It's a, it's a challenging role for an actor. It's heavy. It's very emotional. And it could have easily gone to just angry, aggressive, uh, you know, that, that beast he turns into when he's with Alex. But he brought a lot of humanity and depth to the character. I think that torture scene in the bathroom when he first brings Franklin there without Franklin knowing what's going on. He has him bring him an extra pair of clothes. And who is tied up to the radiator? It's Alex Jones. He's handcuffed there. And then they start torturing him, start working on him. And then the hammer sequence where he's actually going to use the hammer, you think, and he's bashing the sink and bashing the wall with it. It is an emotional sequence the first time you see it. Like, that was a heavy scene to watch. And then I think one of the most intense reveals of this movie might be when... Um, Franklin's wife, played by Vi- Viola Davis, comes. Nancy, I think Nancy Birch yeah. comes to the bathroom, the bathroom torture room after Franklin confesses to her what her 
where he's been the last few days, the last few nights, what he's been doing. And she takes the bag off his face, the bloodied red bag, and the completely swollen face of Alex Jones makes just my, my me squirm and just like I can feel like ugh, ugh, it's intense, it's yeah. dark, it's so realistic and in, in it's heavy as hell. And like those sequences inside that bathroom are just pretty hard to watch. But Hugh Jackman is absolutely incredible in this movie. I love the moment where. Keller, he's been unloading on Alex with haymakers and pummeling him, and he's tired. He's exhausted. He's like, "Why won't you just tell us where we are?" He's he doesn't understand what Loki was trying to tell him earlier. Where Alex doesn't understand exactly what's happening. Questioning him isn't going to work, even if he does know. He's not, he doesn't understand what's what's going on. Loki tried expressing this to Keller multiple times. But Keller just wouldn't understand what he was saying, and he's like, "If he knows where he where my kid is, he's I can figure out a way to hurt him enough to tell me." And I think that moment early on in the torturing where Keller just seems defeated and he's he's confused. He's like, "Why aren't you telling me? Like I'm I'm destroying your face. Like why aren't you telling me? Don't you want this to stop?" That's a moment where where it shows that he doesn't understand Alex and what kind of mind this kid has, and unfortunately. It, it just leads him to try new ways of torturing him. The hammer scene in particular is obviously a highlight of the film. That was a completely improvised moment. So he was never supposed to bash anything with a hammer. The hammer was there and Denis Villeneuve asked. I think that they did a bunch of takes and Villeneuve wasn't happy with what he was seeing. Or maybe he thought it could be better. He's like, go absolute ape shit. Yeah, he's, he, told, he told Hugh Jackman to be as ferocious and horrible as possible. And then Hugh Jackman in that scene takes the hammer... He bashes the sink multiple times, and then he bashes the wall again next to Paul Dano's head. None of that was planned. None of that was on the script, on the page. They didn't block that. It was all completely improvised. And you got to give kudos to Paul Dano in that moment because he did not flinch. It wasn't until the hammer hit the wall that he, he just dropped, collapsed to his feet, like he couldn't even stand up anymore from fear. But Paul Dano really holds it in that scene, and I feel like m- maybe other actors probably would have flinched and maybe reacted differently. But Dano is just as good in that moment as Hugh Jackman is because Hugh Jackman's unleashing rage and fury, and he has great control with his physicality of well as well, hitting the sink a couple of times, like testing it out, and then hitting the wall just mere inches from Paul Dano's head. But for Paul Dano to not move when that hammer's striking next to his head, kudos to him. He, he really made that scene work. There's so much complexity to Alex Jones's character and the connection with Keller Dover and why he kidnaps him. Of course, he's the first suspect because he's the guy driving the RV that gets found at the gas station. He crashes it. He gets taken into custody. But there's not a single trace of evidence of the girls being inside or around that RV besides when they were just near it earlier with their brother and sister on yeah. their way to the house when they were just on a walk. And after two days of 48 hours of custody, they he legally has to be released because they can't charge him with anything. He didn't technically do anything wrong without any evidence. And then, obviously, when he's leaving the police station, Keller comes up to him and starts screaming at him. And then he says that line, they only cried when I, when I left. They only started to cry when I left. And obviously, the audience knows and Keller knows that somehow, somehow Alex Jones knows where the kids are. Whether or not he kidnapped them or not, clearly it's 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 up for debate because 
His IQ is so low, it's of a 10-year-old, and when you finally understand this character who was a child abducted from his family, never socially grew or intellectually grew from age 10 on, as well as all the trauma experience being with Holly Jones his whole life and with her husband. Plus the drugs. Exactly. Yeah. So his brain is just, it's just mush now. It's t- it, the IQ of a 10-year-old, but probably even even worse than that because yeah. of all the drugs. You're right. So he can't communicate. He doesn't really understand what's happening when he's being interrogated, whether it's with Loki or Keller. He's probably terrified to tell anyone anything about the situation at all because even though he's free, he's driving around, he's still... He has this odd loyalty to Holly Jones and says he even loves her when he's asked about it by Loki. And so, but the audience knows and Keller knows. I can see it in his eyes. He knows where they are. He knows. He keeps saying these little nuggets of lines and I have to beat it out of him somehow. But he'll just never understand that this way of interrogation is is. Force it's there's no way that Alex could respond to the questioning that it's being asked of him. But I like that. I, it's, I'll slightly disagree with the, you saying the audience knows Alex did because Denis Villeneuve purposely, with the sound design, made it barely audible what Alex said in in the crowd. Like you, you barely heard, hear it, and they did that on purpose. They didn't they didn't make it clear and loud for the audience on purpose because they want the audience to feel like is he res- wait what did he did he really say that? And then in the next scene, the next immediate scene where the captain and Loki ask. Keller, what did he say? And Keller repeats it. Even the when when Loki's like, "Are you sure that's what he said? Is th- are you sure that's what you heard?" Even as an audience member, the first time I saw this, I was like, "Did he say that?" I- I'm not 100 percent sure that's what Alex said because it was so quiet and soft spoken. I thought it was a genius bit of sound design to even keep the audience guessing. Wait, is that what he said? Am I thinking incorrectly, or am I completely convinced like Keller, but wrong? It kind of puts you in Keller's shoes, of like. Is this torture worth? Is he? Is it in the right direction? Is it with the right motivation? So I love the sound design of that moment because they could have made it clear while still being quiet without making it seem like anybody in the crowd heard, but they purposely kept it very soft and very subtle. So I think that was just genius sound design. Great point. But to counter the next couple sequences, what happens? Keller starts to surveil Alex Jones yes. on his own. And what's he see? Alex Jones taking his dog out for a walk. He stops at the sidewalk and then tortures the dog hanging in the air, choking the hell out of it with the leash and collar until it can't take any more. Then he lets it down, obviously letting out his trauma. But to Keller, he's watching. This is a madman. He's the one who's done yeah. it. This is the, the next sign of evidence. He's clearly the guy. He's the one who took the kids. And then he follows him a little more, gets out of his car. He's not probably going to kidnap him yet until he hears Alex Jones singing, Batman smells Robin laid an egg. The Batmobile lost its wheel. Joker, Joker got, got away. away. Hey, that fun kids Christmas Batman rhyme. The jingle that the daughters, the girls were singing on Thanksgiving. Alex Jones is singing it, meaning this is the proof that I need for me to take the next steps of what I see is the best path to finding my daughter. And again, it's all circumstantial. It's <laughs> exactly, not hard yeah. evidence. So even the audience, it's like, well, maybe he knows the song on his own and he is a weird guy, but does him choking the dog mean he kidnapped the girls? It's just brilliant how this film is laid out with the clues where nothing is hard evidence, even as an audience member watching the film. You're like, I mean, he's a weird guy. He's clearly, clearly fucked up, but like, does this mean he kidnapped the girls that could? But I mean, if I'm a cop, you can't prosecute with him singing the same jingle. So he it, it shows showcases the two sides of the law and how you approach 
this where he's just he just becomes a vigilante in a way and takes it upon himself to investigate it with harsh methods whereas Loki he understands that this is very worrying news all all these pieces of evidence all these clues none of it's hard evidence is all circumstantial but like he says he's he doesn't cross Alex off his list he's still very suspicious of Alex he still thinks that there's something going on with Alex but he knows that he can't pursue it if he has no evidence so and also Keller doesn't understand police investigation quite like Loki's trying to explain. Loki can't just, like, arrest people because he wants to. He needs real evidence, and it that's the biggest... That's the, the red tape of being a detective. The walls that you face of... You might suspect someone, you might feel they're the one, but if you don't have the evidence, you can't do anything about it. So Loki understands that he, he has to be patient, and yeah, every day matters in this situation, but there's really nothing he can do, and then when... Uh, when Keller's identifying the the bloody clothes of the photographs that um, the character Bob, Bob Taylor, Taylor took, <clears throat> jinx, <laughs> <laughs> a cough jinx, and then what happens is that, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> take your time, man, take your time. What was I saying? You're talking about Bob Taylor after Keller identifies the bloody sock. Yeah, yeah. But what was I saying before that? You're talking about Prisoners, the movie. <laughs> Also, Loki, he understood that versus <laughs> the movie. He understood that. So Keller blamed Loki. So he said, it was your fault. You wasted too much time. You shouldn't have been following me. You should have been looking for my daughter. But he doesn't understand that Loki did everything he could have done. And he didn't get to Bob Taylor until he got that tip from the girl who worked at the shopping mall. And there's no, there was no way to speed that up. You know what I mean? It happened when it was going to happen. And there was no way for, for Loki to get the evidence faster. It was an impossibility. So Keller doesn't understand police investigations and how they take time, and you can't just make things happen. You can set things up like he set up with the the clerk at the sh at the shopping mall. If you see him again, give me a call. He facilitated that, but he couldn't just arrest the guy. He couldn't find the guy. And so Keller – Loki didn't waste any time. Keller thinks he wasted time, so he's wrongly blaming Loki. He's also blaming Loki because he doesn't want to accept the responsibility that – it was his job, ultimately, to protect his daughter, and he was very careless on Thanksgiving Day. That's also why he's blaming Loki. He doesn't want to accept the responsibility that, you know what, she probably got kidnapped because of me, and it was not Loki's fault at all. And Bob Taylor was not even the kidnapper yeah. or murderer, which we'll get into later on when we talk more about Bob Taylor, because I'm sure some people are still Itching curious for that about who that guy is. It I'm was Bob Taylor! I'm milking that, because he was not involved with the kidnappings at all or the murders, but he does have a tremendous past that's connected to everything now to what is it oh spoilers yeah cliffhanger saving that saving cliffhanger, that cliffhanger man but i want to stay on keller a little bit longer yeah, yeah. and so like these decisions that both keller and loki specifically them two and as well as franklin and nancy and everyone else their decisions and the paths they're choosing are all connected to being trapped inside of a maze being trapped inside of a puzzle you take this wrong turn you're like hitting wrong dead ends you're along these walls and each decision you make might take you in the right direction and the next one might take you in the opposite direction of finding answers so every character every decision they're making specifically with the two leads they're just trapped in this maze-like puzzle that reminds me so much of like the shining all the cinematography of like the maze there that connects to the cinematography and the maze designs in this film as well but also to stay more on keller between him and Loki, it's kind of like institutions versus the individual, the paths you would take to find answers, the vigilante versus the police force. And then more about the religion of Keller Dover. Again, he's a devout Catholic. You were talking about the names how and how Keller, the name, means basement in German. His wife's name is Grace. 
His mother's name is Mary. Keller Dover is also a contractor, or you could call him a carpenter. Mm -hmm. He also has crucifixes everywhere. He has one inside of his truck. Uh, very devout, prays multiple times. So, and, but he's also following this dark path. He's eventually abandoning his faith until his darkest moment where he starts to pray for forgiveness and safety for his, his daughter, Hannah. So does, does Keller represent faith? Does it, he represent God? Does he represent what happens to people when they lose their faith? Well, I mean, and that's the whole point of Holly and her, her husband who's passed away. That was the war they were waging on God was, and that's why they kidnap kids. They kidnap children to make people lose their faith and turn them into demons like Keller becomes a demon. She calls she calls him a demon. She knows she she knows that he took Alex and that he's become a monster. And so that's what that's what their goal was, Holly and her husband, to turn people into monsters just like and to make them lose their faith because they lost their faith. They were also devout Catholics and their their son died of of cancer. And then they ended up adopting Alex after they kidnapped him as a way to try and cope with it. But they completely lost their faith and they became monsters. And so they wanted to do that to other people. And that's why that, that's their motivation for kidnapping other children. Blank. Now, there's a question about Keller that I didn't quite get the first time I saw the film. But then upon, on repeat viewings, you really you, you, you accept it. And I think so. What's the question, man? Did he play a part in saving his kid? So he went through all this torturing of Alex and questioning him. And was it all for nothing because the girls got away on their own? The girls escaped Holly's house. Well, one well, did. Well, one did. Joy did. And then eventually Loki, it led Loki to go um, after Holly at the end of the film. Uh, and Keller goes before that. But Keller doesn't actually like physically save the girls. But he absolutely did save their lives. They would have died earlier if it wasn't for, for Keller kidnapping Alex and holding him hostage because Holly says to Keller when they have my favorite scene in the film is Holly and Keller in the in the kitchen it's a really amazing scene great writing but just terrific performances from Melissa Leo and Hugh Jackman Melissa Leo is a great actress Oscar winner and her her role in this film is just very underrated in terms of antagonist in a movie I think because she just has so few um, minutes of, of screen time she doesn't isn't as maybe impact, impactful as other villains in movies but she's really amazing in this film but she tells keller um she had the girls down there when he when they reveal the pit in the in the driveway and she says i had the girls down there back when the uh, the cops came sniffing around and she said i would have left them in there but it got so lonely without alex here and so she was feeling lonely because keller had kidnapped alex for days and so holly being being lonely took the girls inside and kept them hostage and held them captive in the house so that she could have company, basically. So she could have other people around her because she was missing Alex and just felt completely lonely. And so Keller did save both. The girls were alive because of Keller. And if Keller had not kidnapped Alex and if Keller had not held Alex in his apartment for days, Holly would have killed the girls before the cops ever got there. So Keller played an instrumental part in the girls surviving. That's a great point because I have seen that in a lot of online discussions or, or comment sections where people saying that Keller had no effect on Loki and the and the girls being f saved and rescued. But that that's a terrific point that he actually did play a huge part in the being yeah. saved. But that's another thing of Villeneuve not wanting to spell everything out for the audience. We just get that one line from Melissa Leo from Holly just saying... I would have killed them earlier, but I was so lonely without Alex here. I brought them inside the house with me. That's it. 
But it tells you that it's, it tells you that Keller absolutely saved the girls. And Holly Jones, like you said, a terrific character, underrated villain in films. And to play Holly Jones, Melissa Leo wore a gray wig and foam rubber posterior prepared by costume designer Renee April in order to ground her character. Leo also requested their props assistance to avoid cleaning her glasses after each day's shooting. And it's kind of like that classic, the sweet old lady, she's not a suspect. She wouldn't <laughs> harm a fly. You would never suspect her. And her, her methods of kidnapping and murder are pretty ingenious than she clearly developed them with her husband, who was the man, the body, the corpse underneath the home of the priest that Unnamed. Loki found later later yeah. on because the necklace Keller, I mean, Loki saw in the photograph was the same necklace with the maze, the puzzle on it. And they developed this method after their son died. They would kidnap kids and they made this concoction, this drug that they would have to drink, which would keep them... Uh, alive and lucid, but controllable. And yeah. they probably had to drink it every single day of their lives as long as they were kidnapped. I'm sure they did it enough to Alex Jones where he didn't have to take it anymore because he's just been so trained and accustomed yeah, to living with them. He absolutely. He's accepted his fate. But people, in case you're curious, the connection of the snakes here and why the serpent is brought up multiple times. And obviously in Bob Taylor's house, he's got a bins full of snakes We'll get to that eventually. We just get to it now. Well, we get to all right. Yeah, we'll talk about been, Bob, it's been forty-five connect, minutes. We'll, we'll talk about Bob Taylor, but, yeah. but first, the reason for the snakes is because Holly briefly mentions how my husband used to love snakes, and you can assume that they used the, the he used the venom from the snakes to create this concoction that they use to drug their prisoners. Absolutely, and so, so and that's where so this is where this the maze is coming to play, and the snakes come into play. And we should, yeah. Especially with uh, Bob Taylor's character, what were you going to say? I'm sorry, and we can only assume that there was more underground tunnels possibly underneath the house. We don't really see anything besides where Keller's dropped. But we can assume that there are multiple places where children were dropped. And it might even be a labyrinth of holes in prisons surrounding the house underground. Yeah, there could. I'm guessing there are probably bodies all over that yard. And there you had the... the what do you, I don't, the forensic skies, they were digging up the solid earth, and I'm sure when the, the ground thaws out, they'll find actual bodies. So this all ties to Bob Taylor, and this all ties to the snakes and the mazes. So Bob Taylor is obviously a very strange person. He's very suspicious. Loki, very perceptive of an officer at the candlelit vigil. He notices Bob Taylor oddly approach one of the stuffed animals and just gesture and he touches it in a way that like a kid would touch a, a stuffed animal he finds that odd for a, a grown man to do they have this weird eye contact and then bob taylor runs away terrific foot chase ensues i like how they filmed it no music it's not like actiony it's more of just like uh it, it, spine tingling suspenseful and realistic realistic and eventually bob taylor he got away i'm guessing because he knows the neighborhood much better than loki would because he lives in this area and so Bob Taylor is obsessed with mazes. That's why when Loki shows up at his house, and I love when Loki gets there, he's like, "Yeah, this is the guy." He <laughs> just he just smiles at him, and then Bob Taylor's like, "Oh shit, you I, you bought you bought kids clothes. <laughs> why, why'd you run away from me, man? <laughs> I don't know you." I love I love the smile that Jake. It's just the subtle subtle performance. But Bob Taylor's house is covered in mazes, mazes that are very similar to the maze on Holly's husband's necklace. And what, first of all, great production design because I feel like ev like if any other filmmaker made this scene, the puzzles would be drawn with the same ink and same kind of marker. It would just be consistent. 
But Villeneuve, using his brilliance of uh, a filmmaker and visuals, he'd be like, he would use different kinds of tools. You could red pens, black pens, pencils, what have you. And so I like how the mazes all over the house are different kinds of uh, supplies used made them. You know Attention what I mean? to detail. This movie is off the charts because I feel like it, in other mo- if other people made the movie, it would just be like black ink the whole time, consistent. Whereas this has a much, it's more disturbing too. And then also, like you said, his home is filled with bins full of snakes. And the first time I saw this movie, I'm like, don't tell me one of the girls is in there. Oh my God, please. I was terrified when Loki was going through the bins. And so the snakes in the maze is tied to Bob Taylor's time with Holly and her husband. Bob Taylor was one of these kids who was abducted decades ago. He eventually escaped, or maybe they let him go, and he doesn't quite remember what happened to him, but he ha- he does have the tra- traumatic memory of it. I haven't. I totally forgot about Bob Taylor until he killed himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Holly says that. Yeah, exactly. And so that book in so Rich was one of the uh, investigators, and then Loki goes to see Rich to tell him about some new evidence. And Rich is like the lead. He looks like the lead forensic scientist on site, and they, he tells him about this book that's there, the um, Catching the Invisible Man. And it's about this. It's a true crime novel written in the in this world, not a real life novel. But it's a true crime novel written about the child abductors in in this Pennsylvania area. And Bob Taylor, he said, becomes a fan of this book and begins trying to live out the what happens in the book. And that's why he buries the mannequins, the kid sized mannequins in the in his backyard after bashing their skulls. And he was like living through, like being the Invisible Man. And he's basically living through his past trauma he doesn't completely understand it because like alex jones he's not all there he's he was drugged up as a kid plus the horrible traumatic nature of it his memory's probably all fucked up but that's why he has mazes all over his house that's why he likes drawing mazes because holly jones's husband was probably obsessed with mazes as well that's why they have the kids try to solve they have the kids have notebooks trying to solve mazes their entire entire time there both the girls uh, both the daughters we see in quick little flashbacks that they were told by Holly, if you solve the maze, you'll be able to escape. And so mazes were an ins- instrumental part of passing time when they had the children there. That's why Bob Taylor's obsessed with mazes and also accident with the snakes. Alex had an accident with the snake that one of Holly's husband's snakes, I'm sure. And Bob Taylor, same kind of thing. That's why he collects snakes. That's why he basically creates mazes constantly because he was one of those kids. Now he was not, he did not, he was not involved in the kidnapping at all of this film. But what he does is he likes to recreate the crimes. He likes to live through them again. And that's why he goes into both homes to steal clothing from the girls' uh, drawers and closets to kind of relay and replay the kidnapping and killing of the girls. So Bob Taylor, he believes he was taken by this invisible man, and he believes that he's he's trying to, like they say, he's acting out the crimes, the mannequins, the pig's blood all over the clothing. When you first see Bob Taylor going into the children's bedrooms of the missing girls, stealing their clothing, the first time you see that, you're thinking maybe he's like taking something, like a memento a from trophy. their room. Yeah. Not necessarily a trophy, but like, Maybe that he's grabbing something to bring back to these kids because oh, yeah. because they're at home, maybe to make them feel a little more at home, to calm them down a little bit, bring something that's theirs to wherever they're being kidnapped. Why else would he be breaking into this house? Why else would he w- run from the vigil if he's not the kidnapper? But he's recreating his kidnapping and pretending to be the kidnapper and the killer who he believes is the invisible kill- the invisible man or whatever it is. 
He thinks that that was his kidnapper. He's living out a fantasy of being that killer and kidnapper. And by stealing the clothing from the missing girls, he is setting himself up to be arrested basically you can assume he went to the vigil because he wanted to become assessed a suspect he has all these snakes because he wants to be a suspect because that's what happened in his past that's what he thinks he has to do he's drawing all these mazes and puzzles because it's somehow connected so he's trying to basically become the killer because he can't escape his past and his trauma that's why the socks even though it's they're correctly identified by the parents they weren't taken by the kidnappers. They were just stolen by Bob Taylor to make it seem like he was the killer because that's all. He can't escape his trauma in his past. Yeah. And then eventually when he's drawing the map, he's drawing the mazes and puzzles that he was drawing when he was a child kidnapped for three weeks with Holly and her husband. You can assume he had the same exact thing told to him. If you finish all the mazes, you can go home. And he's just recreating those mazes over and over again until one of them might actually look like the house where the bodies are, of children are dropped. That's why he's burying the mannequins because he probably saw this happen to other kids. And obviously, I'm sure Alex Jones was there at the same time, maybe, or before then. Mm -hmm. And so he's living out... Alex Jones was definitely living there because yeah. Alex was the first one they took. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. So, so he's living out his past trauma because it's the only way he can deal with it. He can't escape it. And that's why he has these snakes. That's why he has the pig's blood all over the clothing. He's just staging everything to recreate his trauma but he's the perfect suspect and loki thinks it's him and we think it's him and everyone thinks that this is the guy we caught him until joy get turns up and then like yeah. you know this isn't the guy i would say that he doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be arrested because he clearly is adverse to loki's showing up at his house and he clearly isn't happy about being arrested but so what what I think he's doing, he's trying to make sense of his mind. He's trying to make sense of his past. In his prison. Yeah, so he's not, I don't think he wants to get caught, but he's just trying to make sense of everything that's going on inside of his head, is what I would say. It's really complex, because it's, it's again, this whole movie's a maze, and it's all a huge puzzle, and you think this is the guy, and you're watching it, and you find out, this is not the guy at all. He's connected from a distant past of being one of the boys who was abducted, abducted by this couple, but he's not the killer, he's not the kidnapper. And ironically, Denis Villeneuve and Roger Deakins told the audience who, that it was Holly in the first act of the film, the uh, the RV shot. Oh, so yeah, when yeah. Loki goes to Holly's house, at the, fir the first time he goes to Holly's house, and it's just like a very menial in interview. He's not interrogating her, he's not suspicious of her at all, he's just trying to learn more background about Alex. And then... <clears throat> Holly takes him into Alex's room to look around his bedroom, and then he and then Loki sees uh, a couple of family photos, and he sees a photo of uh, her husband, and that's where we see the pennant uh, for the first time, after, and then he'll see it again in the basement of the church. But then Vin Vilnov and Deacons take the camera and put it basically like right on top of the dresser, and there's a little toy RV on the dresser. And Loki's in the foreground, and then Holly is standing in the background to, to the left of him. And then Loki just carelessly, kind of playfully, just pushes the little toy RV across the de the dresser. And the dresser just glides across like five or six inches, and then it stops. And Holly is standing right there, perfectly where the RV toy stops. That's done on purpose. That was not just like, hey, look, it, it landed in front of Melissa Leo. Whoa. This was all intentional. So they basically 
hinted that Holly was the killer visually, which is just genius. And it shows that the people are hidden underneath a car that has to be moved, either forwards or backwards. Exactly. And the kidnapping is actually explained as well in the third act. And so Alex actually did take the girls, but as a friend, he wasn't trying to just kidnap them to take them or hurt them. He just wanted to play with them. So he was, he technically did kidnap the girls in terms of driving away with them. He just wanted to have fun and play. But as Holly tells Keller, I was the one that decided they should stay. So she's the one that decided they should stay kidnapped. And even though Alex did take the girls in the RV because they were curious about it earlier, and he's probably very friendly and nice, and he just wanted to play. Talks like a kid. Yeah, he's yeah. basically a child. He didn't know this was going to happen. He's probably also terrified for for the girls in the entire situation while he's being interrogated. So maybe he's worried that they're going to get killed because of him. So maybe that might be something that's going on inside of his head as to why he's not revealing the information to Keller. Yeah, I, I think I look at that's definitely a possibility. And you could say that it's been a long time since Holly last kidnapped and killed a child. And so this is obviously an unexpected arrival at her house. But she was probably happy that it happened because she didn't have to do it. And Holly's the reason why there was no evidence found in the RV. She's an extremely intelligent person, especially as a, a killer. She understands evidence and how traces can be left. So I guarantee she's the one who removed every trace of the girls being in the RV because that's why Loki tries explaining to Keller, like, there's no way a person with an IQ of a 10-year-old could abduct two girls in broad daylight and make them disappear with no evidence. However, someone who's practiced in this kind of thing can, Holly is that person. So although Alex took them, Holly's the one who made them disappear. There's a great connection, I think, between Holly and Keller in this film as well. Obviously, Holly had already lost her faith many years before abducting Keller's daughter and, and Joy as well. And basically that RV, as she's explained to Keller before he suspects her, she's talking about how her and her husband and her son, they would just drive the country and spread the good word of the Lord and, and spread their faith and try to turn people into devout Catholics like them as well. And they they lived a very much, you could probably assume, assume happy life. And now this RV, which was the tool of their faith and their purpose in life, has now become the weapon that they use to steal, abduct, and then murder children. And same thing with Keller, as he's lost his faith, He's a very skilled carpenter. He's got so many tools. These tools which made him very prepared for life for, for any kind of situation. Pray for the best, prepare for the worst. Now these tools and these skills that he's developed that have been part of his life's purpose have now become the ultimate instruments to inflict evil upon Alex Jones as he loses his faith. So you could say that the RV and then the preparedness and tools and skills of Keller are very much connected in their loss of faith and how far they've gone into the darkness. And he never, Keller never anticipated in, in encountering an evil human being. And that's like a disaster, like I said, that he was never, ever prepared for and never thought that would touch his family or his home. Exactly, because he, yeah. and also he thought he prepared his kids so well enough that nothing like this could ever happen. Now, how about we head on into our intermission? Let's do it, and then we gotta talk about Loki. We even okay. we saved him apparently. Oh yeah, we didn't even plan to do this, but we saved Loki for the second half of this episode because I would say it's my favorite Jake Gyllenhaal performance, and and this is also my favorite Hugh Jackman performance. And man, what a character! Oh yeah, what a character. Now let's head into our intermission. 
Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Now we have five tiers of support, $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100 tiers. They all come with a bunch of awesome perks. Obviously, the better tier, the better the perks are. And if you get in the $10 tier, that gets you access to our Discord, which is always popping. We got over like 120 people in the Patreon Discord. So make sure if you are going to support us and you want to be a part of that community, you got to be at least in the $10 tier. Also, if you're looking to start a podcast and want to learn how we did it with ours and how we've made it to the point we are, we put up a masterclass last year. It's called podcastmasterclass.teachable.com. That is the URL to find our masterclass. Anyone can take, anyone can take it online. And we hope it helps you on your path to your podcast success. This episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our coupon code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order right now. MoviePosters.com has a huge selection of every movie and TV show in their poster library. These are high quality, the best you can buy with your money. We have a bunch of these all over our set, all over our home. If you want to get a present for the movie lover in your life, a movie poster is a great idea, as well as a way of showing your love and passion for film and TV. Deck your place out with a bunch of posters. And the best place to do that is at MoviePosters.com. Use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. Now, let's head into our intermission and begin with a quote competition. Now, I have a quote from our fan, Ethan Waters. You ready, Anthony? Hey, Ethan. I'm the one you should be watering if you want me to grow. Huh, that's a good one. I'm the... Hmm. Then he also wrote a clue if you want it. I'll take the clue. He said a clue. It's two lines of these two characters. You love your plant, don't you? It's my best friend. Hmm. I'm stumped. Leon the professional. Oh. <laughs> or just Leon. Oh my god. Good one. Good one. They take that everywhere. <laughs> Here's my quote. Marriage is like a tense, unfunny version of Everybody Loves a- Raymond, only it doesn't last 22 minutes. It lasts forever. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that knocked up? Yes. Yeah, Paul Rudd's yeah, character. Paul Rudd, yeah. <laughs> 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 Mr. Skin. <laughs> All right. Guess this movie release year. Cur- <laughs> it looks like your computer has uh, what's it called uh, chickenpox. <laughs> when the uh... oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my quote. My guess this movie release year. Courage under fire. Nineteen ninety eight. Ninety six. Guess this release year. Clueless. 95? Yeah, you're not clueless. <laughs> movie pop quiz time. How many Coen Brothers movies has Roger Deakins shot? And bonus points if you can name them. It's <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> I'm going to guess 12. It's actually only nine. Oh, only nine. So we have No Country for Old Men. I can try to name some. Okay. So No Country for Old Men. What, what else you got? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, serious Man, two. Hail Caesar, three. Um, no, he didn't. They didn't do Inside Lou and Dave. They didn't do Raising Arizona. No, they didn't do that one. They didn't do. Oh, True Grit. No, 
Yeah, they did. Are you sure? He Hold did on. True Grit. Let me double check. Yeah. True Grit cinematographer. Was done. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, it was Roger Deacon. Sorry. True Grit. Uh, Barton Fink. Yes. Big Lebowski. Yes. Um, I feel like, I feel like I'm just blanking on a couple so right now. It's actually now. 10. So, yeah. Um, oh, I'm so couple of them and you're gonna shoot yourself in the foot i know i'm sure i'm sure it's just sometimes you blank on it and you just can't come up with things that you know and love so mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. uh making excuses <laughs> sure are hold on hold on uh mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. oh what's it called the hot proxy yep um And you got you got four left, man. Come on, you can do this. Um, I'm the dude. I already said Lebowski. Oh, you did. Okay, yeah. sorry. You clearly, weren't listening. I wasn't. I said them all. Actually, you just were listening. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let me no. get the others. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, take it too long. Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh my god, Fargo. Oh my god, <laughs> and the man who wasn't there. Oh man, yeah, the Fargo one's a big one. You missed. It's just like you just blink on obvious stuff sometimes. You do, man. I did pretty good. You did, yeah, you did pretty well. I mean, the Hudsucker one, I didn't think you get that. Please. Bitch, please. <laughs> That's a good question. All right, here's my quiz. What Boz Lerman movie did Paul Rudd appear in? Paul Rudd in a Boz Lerman movie? Huh. Well, hmm. I'm going to guess Romeo and Juliet. Correct. Nice. Good job. Wow. So he plays the the guy who's courting Claire Danes. Gotcha. Um, in that film, courting Juliet. And then Leo shows up and steals her away. He's Obviously. like super jelly. Obviously. Ooh, good, we, you're three for three, bro. Damn. Look at three for three. Look at that. On fire. Do we have any uh, haters this week or unsubscribes? We, we, have, some, we have some good unsubscribes. <clears throat> we have just a bunch of haters and uh, a clip of... Al Pacino and De Niro. People, there are a lot <laughs> of heat. There are a lot of angry dudes out there. The diner scene. who hate Pacino and De Niro. Apparently, oh my God. Uh, Archangel nine oh nine two wrote Batman Begins posters are the best out of the trilogy. Unsubscribe. I love those posters. <laughs> I said they were there. I didn't really like the Batman Begins posters. <laughs> and Anthony said that. Travis Ryan in our latest movie news episode wrote Gerard Butler Pogo Stick. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's <laughs> the, the next, next movie after plane yeah and in, in, in after ship. yeah after razor scooter <laughs> also the roller shoes are called heelys not wheelies unsubscribe oh, they are heelys <laughs> you're right heelys. i felt like we were wrong about it batman who laughs wrote in our last of us episode five review you put up the picture without the four different stages of infection but only said three you forgot stalker unsubscribed <laughs> i uh purposely edited that out cause yeah it, and it made that clip go viral because <laughs> all the comments were you forgot about stalker forgot about stalkers <laughs> uh dawson wrote in our tetris origins post if there isn't a love story between the l tetramino and the s tetramino i will unsubscribe <laughs> <laughs> And then we have we have a bunch today, and then and then, okay. Call your Will Middleton wrote. Call yourselves a film podcast, but haven't seen every Fast and Furious film. Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> Preston Gear wrote for mentioning Moon, but blatantly avoiding the fact that you two are obviously clones of one another. Consider this podcast unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the real Sam? Uh, 
I don't know. He also, or oh, Preston also wrote, he, uh, we were wrong about Riddick. There's three Riddicks. There are? Yeah. The last one was Riddick. The second one was, was Chronicles of Riddick. And then Preston wrote, the first Riddick movie was called Pitch Black. Pitch Black. That's yeah, right. You have dishonored Sir Vincent Von Diesel for the last time. Unsubscribe. <laughs> Although I was correct that Chronicles of Riddick was the second one. Yes, you were. That's but right. we forgot there was a Pitch third black. one. There was just one called Riddick that came out in 2013. That's right. But everyone's been asking for it, so we get in the fourth one. <laughs> Riddick, Furia. <laughs> Here we go again. We have a great five-star review from Gianfranco Chalidis. The best film podcast. If you're looking for a film podcast to listen to, this is probably the one for you. And I'm not even saying that because I'm a fellow Massachusetts native. This is the podcast that really got me into podcasts as I've been going back and listening to to their old episodes. And I can't get enough. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, pal. Thanks. Uh, Hopefully you don't go too far back because some of those early episodes are very no get us the views actually yeah, get, get us the, the downloads we want we need those we've downloads. come a long way that's yeah, all i'm gonna we say have, we've we come have quite it's a while. it's cool to see the difference it is it is although it's kind of cringy and a little embarrassing those old sets man yeah, it's fun to see the difference it was literally a, sh- a bedroom window curtain behind each of us but then also just our personalities and cadence and way of speaking is just on a different level yeah now. you're no more robotic <laughs> hello welcome to raiders of the lost <laughs> podcast <laughs> raiders of <laughs> raiders 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 <laughs> <laughs> you got red. You, 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 you cracked yourself up. That's you malfunctioning. Oil up. low. Oil rickin low. These are robot. My streaming recommendation for this episode is going to be another kidnapping movie on HBO Max. High and Low, directed by Akira Kurosawa. It is tremendous. Highly, highly recommend watching it. You can see how, if you watch it, that it became the blueprint for a lot of kidnapping stories in film and TV. Absolutely. What, 1962? Was that your 63. 63? I believe 63. Let me double check. My streaming recommendation is The Northman is on Amazon Prime. I liked it even more the second time I saw it. It's a phenomenal film from Robert Eggers. Check it out if you haven't seen it on Prime Video. It was 1963. Nice. Nice, man. All right, let's get back into Prisoners and finally talk about The Face. (laughs) Jake Gyllenhaal. What a handsome, talented guy. Now, actually, fun random fact about this movie. (laughs) Ryan Gosling auditioned for the role of Detective Loki, which later went to Jake Gyllenhaal, who is a frequent collaborator with Denis Villeneuve. They actually made Enemy, which they filmed before this movie. Both came out around... This one, Prisoners, came out in 2013. Enemy was released in 2013 and 2014, depending on which country you lived in. But technically, they're both kind of 2013 releases, although Enemy was shot first. That was the first English-speaking movie that Denis Villeneuve made. And then they had such a great working relationship on that film that he cast him for prisoners although obviously gosling got his opportunity to work with denis villeneuve in blade runner 2049 as k and i believe villeneuve's follow-up to dune 2 will be a movie with jake gyllenhaal oh that sounds awesome a a sci-fi space movie with gyllenhaal that sounds incredible (laughs) (laughs) so i'm looking forward to seeing them work together i think that uh villeneuve for good reason understands that jake is an extremely talented guy who put so much into his performances. He is, in a lot of ways, a chameleon-esque performer. And one of my favorite detectives ever is Detective Loki. First of all, just the appearance 
It's very different from what you have seen in any other film regarding an officer who isn't undercover. I mean, you'll see the any cops undercover, they'll be blending in with certain look. But to be a, a detective out in the open and to look like this, I thought it was a really bold choice by Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal was heavily involved in the design of the character. He has the undercut haircut. He has tattoos all over his body. He has a Freemason ring. Uh, I mean, to see a detective with finger tattoos is very unusual. And also, the the clothing's interesting. He wears he wears a suit, but and he buttons it up all the way, but he does not wear a tie. He refuses to wear a tie. And then also, he has a very casual esque coat that he wears quite a bit because of the weather. But it's a coat with a hood. Everything's chosen for for a reason. And I think it's just really visually interesting. Plus the the facial tick of these harsh blinks that he can't help himself from doing. They're like these ticks that happen. Really great performance physically from Jake Gyllenhaal on top of the character detail. And these are all things that he added. These weren't part of the script. The tattoos, the ring, the Zodiac tats, the Catholic cross tattoo, the, the eight star cross. I mean the eight star tattoo on his neck. The ticks, that's not in the script for Detective Loki, but he brought it to the table. And I think that's one of my favorite things about this film that's not part of the script that someone brought to the, brought to the film. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal, he's so invested in his work and it shows so much. And I love the introduction of him at the Chinese restaurant we brought up earlier. It's Thanksgiving. He's by himself. He's got no family. You could probably assume that maybe he grew up in foster care or something like that, and that's why he has no family. And he seems to be interested in faith. Different faith, spirituality, religion. He's got, like I say, he's got a cross tattoo on his left hand. And he's got that eight-star symbol on his neck. And there's a great shot in the op- in the interrogation scene with Alex Jones where both are present in the shot. I think, obviously, they did it on purpose. Now, the crucifix tattoo, obviously, self-explanatory. But the eight-pointed star tattoo can symbolize many things like humility, strength, wisdom, and even can be a symbol to act off and ward off, to ward off evil. The mason ring is really interesting because he's got this blend of pagan faith and other religions all over his body. And actually, his, one of his cards reveals his full, na- full name. We only know him as Detective Loki, but his business card or his police card says David Wayne Loki. Now, the Zodiac symbols are really interesting all over his fingers because in 2007, he was in David Fincher's film Zodiac. He's got Leo, Scorpio, Aries, and Virgo tattooed on his fingers. And the Nordic god Loki obviously was an influence on the story and his name. We mostly know Loki from the MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe, played by Tom Hiddleston. And Loki is the god of mischief. Whereas this basis of Loki is is based on the story of Loki because Detective Loki is obsessively trying to find two kidnapped children. In Norse mythology, there's a tale called Loka Tatar where the god Loki persistently tries to protect a child from a giant named Skaramir after Odin and Honir both tried and had given up on the task. And also, besides the tisk, the tisk, the ticks, I'm sorry, the ticks he has, as well as the tattoos and the character design. There's something else that I picked up on. This is probably like the fifth time I've seen this movie. He's always, he's got like this container of like chocolate-covered raisins. On his dash. He's got on the dashboard of, yeah, of his reminds cruiser. reminds me of you. Yeah. <laughs> but he also has it on his desk as well. It's just like these weird little, well, not weird, but these unique details that Jake Gyllenhaal, I'm sure he added that to the character as, as well, to bring realism and just something interesting to the character. What do those black 
chocolate-covered raisins represent. Maybe nothing. Maybe you just thought it would bring something to the table for the character. They're a healthy snack. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in moderation, bro. (laughs) It's a lot of sugar. I'll eat the hell out of them. But do they represent something to Loki? Who knows? Maybe. It's possible. I also think that his performance showcases that there is a past to the character that's not explained or given to the audience, not that it needs to. But this, this case hits him extremely hard. I think that he has a traumatic past as a child with his own parents of some way, of some something, which is why it, it, this case makes him so emotionally invested and it destroys him to the point of like destroying his desk. And I think that they put so much in the, he put so much in the, the performance and the physicality and how he reacts, how he speaks his dialogue and all these scenes that on the surface he seems cool and collected at first. But everything's weighing him down, and not being able to find these girls is is eating away at him. And he also has an immaculate record. He solved every case he's gotten, and this is clearly the hardest case he's ever undertaken. So, you know, just 24 hours of a, a missing child is bad, but, like, anything more than 48 hours guaranteed is, like, a high percentage for them being dead. So once they hit five days, he's, like, a loose cannon. But I think that there's a lot of personal trauma buried deep within him which informs the behavior of the character quite a bit. And Denis Villeneuve and, Sh- and Deacons, they do a really marvelous job of photographing these interrogation scenes. And what I like about these sets, and they did a lot in Sicario as well, is every location, every interior just feels real. It doesn't look like it was built on a soundstage with like cool lighting and oh, amazing, cool production design it's kind of like we were talking about courthouses like a month ago how you know in real life courthouses for the most part are pretty bland and boring looking and they're just like not they're just like they're not cool but it's like not moody lighting yeah. there's no fog there are obviously old courthouses that are old architecture that are still in use but when you're when you see courthouses in movies nine times out of ten it's like a really cool looking courthouse but in reality they're kind of boring looking and Villeneuve and Deacons understand that so when we see the interrogation room of a police precinct that's not lit up with like one overhead light, it's super contrasting, it's so dark in there, you can't see anything, <laughs> and we got this moody lighting, it's just, it's just a plain white room with fluorescent lights overhead, everything's lit up, you know what I mean? It's just a plain table. The office looks like a real office with cubicles. It's not like smoky with like these cool desks and like interesting rugs and... Like, there's none of that bullshit. It just it feels like a real space. That adds so much realism when I watch a movie like this. Same thing with Sicario. And, but the reason why production teams will make things interesting is to keep it not boring for an audience. To keep them visually intrigued. To be like, oh, that's a cool set. It's a boring scene. It's just two people talking at a table. But let's try to make it visually interesting. That's the motivation behind production design. So you can't knock them for that. But Deacons and Villeneuve understand that if the story and the performances and the dialogue works... It doesn't matter what the set looks like. So they go for realism. Deacons has always gone for practical lighting whenever he can. But the way they shoot this interrogation scene with Alex and Loki is brilliant because they start with this huge wide shot of the room. Super, super wide. And Loki and Alex are standing in the corner, the furthest part from the, from the lens. That makes the space look like really massive. Very, really interesting way to start the, the scene. And then they cut to a, a medium two shot of both characters profiled and it's intense and this it's not like a back and forth editing that most of that scene takes place with just that two shot because the performances are so strong and we're getting right up with the both characters that's all we need for the scene with editing and cinematography they understand that 
most of the time, simple fixes and simple approaches are more powerful. And that's a really good example of just it's, that whole sequence is just a couple of shots. They're not editing back and forth between the characters. It's more impactful having both these guys in the frame. You can really feel the unease and tension and the questioning. And both Dano and Hall are fabulous in that scene. But I, just, I think it's a highlight of cinematography because of how they approach shooting this boring-looking set. And editing, writing and directing this film. This sequence is terrific. I'm glad you brought it up because when we follow, when we're at the gas station and Alex gets arrested and... Loki tells them his uh, officers to take him away and tells him what to do with the area. And then we hard cut to that interrogation room, that shot. And most directors, screenwriters, filmmakers, they would have like Loki walk into the room, say a couple lines yes, to, yeah. to Alex Jones at the table, maybe take the cuffs off and like loosen up a little bit. No, we cut right to the most intense moment of the conversation. He is inches from his face. He's holding that photograph up to him. We're in that corner. He's pushed him into the corner. We're already in the heat of the conversation. It's no bullshit. There's no fluff on this movie. It's brilliant editing, directing, and screenwriting. And there's so many moments like this in the film that make it move so much more quickly than the average screenwriter or filmmaker would do with this kind of story. Another great example of this no BS editing and and directing is when Loki goes to the Kellers and the Birch's houses for the first time. He goes to see Nancy Birch, who's at the table. And great production design for this entire movie. They never clean up the Thanksgiving food. There's pumpkin pie everywhere, all over the microwave, all over the kitchen. They never clean anything because they're so distraught and they can't even function on a day-to-day basis. So for several days, the house is just covered with Thanksgiving leftovers. And they don't even really speak or anything like that. He just tries to get her attention. And all she does is hand him new photographs that have clearer looks at Joy's eyes. She, she doesn't ask him any questions, and she doesn't respond to any questions. That's all she says in and out. That's the end of the scene, basically. It's just so quick, effective. It's all the information we really need. It's all the information these characters would even give to each other because this mother has lost her child. They only have one child, and it's their life, and Joy is missing. She can't even speak. No, they have two. They have another daughter. Oh, the, the, the older daughter. sister. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's okay. And they they have two daughters. You just got excited. <laughs> I know, man. I was going in. And also great. But, ed- but I mean, great editing and rewriting. Yeah. And the editing in the interrogation scene is they cu- they edit over a couple of shots of the RV in the evidence room with forensics teams going through the different parts of it with voiceover of what's happening in the the interrogation room. I thought that was a terrific edit to throw in there. And Loki's path in this film is obviously the polar opposite, you could say, of what Keller's path. But they're both, like I said earlier, they're both trapped in a maze. They're both trapped in a puzzle. And the decisions they're making, the choices they, they decide to make, take them in the right direction or the wrong direction. They're just in this labyrinth of decisions and possibilities and suspects and they don't know exactly where they're going they're both trying to reach the center of that labyrinth whichever way gets them there they'll follow it obviously loki has to abide by the law because he's part of this institution whereas keller takes his hands in the law into his own hands and does basically whatever he wants with torturing but loki has to follow the rules of the law for the most part but his path of finding the answers At first, they always seem like dead ends that aren't connected, but eventually 
everything's connected, whether it's Bob Taylor and the mystery about him and what he's all about, or when he's investigating the sex offenders and one of them is the priest at the priest's home and he discovers that trap door in the fridge because he's a very clever guy. Obviously, he's going to see what's up with the floor, why is what this fridge looks like it's covering something, the cable is so far from the outlet, this looks ridiculous, let me move this. Uh, Father, you mind if I look around? That's like the one funny line in the movie yeah. which actually lends so well. And he goes into that basement under the under under the floor of the home, and there's no stairs to get down there. And it's a great sequence down there. And he discovers the corpse of somebody who's been dead for clearly a long time, and has that interesting puzzle maze labyrinth necklace around his neck, which he obviously connects to Bob Taylor immediately. But for the most part, it's like a dead end for him. Like, oh, I found this dead body, but it has nothing to do really yeah. with this investigation. When he's talking to Rich, he's like, he's like, there's a way this connected. I just don't know how. But then eventually frustrated. all these puzzles and pieces get put together. And obviously he realize, he thinks Bob Taylor's his guy because it fits the necklace. It's not until he's in Holly Jan- Jones' house because his commanding officer told him to go there to tell him the news about Alex Jones, who he discovered trapped inside that shower at Keller's apartment. He wasn't even going there to investigate Holly. He just goes there because his captain tells him. He's like, come on, captain. I don't want to go. I'm tired. Like, Just let me go home. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, I want you to go tell Holly Jones an informer about Alex Jones' situation. And then he sees the photograph of the man in Holly's bedroom with that necklace, immediately ties it to the man in the basement of the priest. Ironically, the priest is confessing to him in this interrogation instead of vice versa, where it usually happens with a priest. And the priest tells him that that person who, he also says it to him when he's being arrested, that that guy was a killer of of children. He He told me he killed at least 10 boys kidnapped and murdered them. And and Loki and everyone thinks it's BS, but then he realizes and connects the dots that this is Holly Jones' husband. This was the killer. She's got to be connected. She's part of this. She is the killer and kidnapper. Another small detail that he thinks is a dead end is the house in which Alex Jones' RV was parked outside of during Thanksgiving was his former childhood home and that's the, a home loki looks into where a boy named a child named barry was disappeared and kidnapped and nobody ever heard from him again and his mom moved to a new home and then he goes to visit the the woman who just watches this tape of her son barry every morning when he was a child actually that's a boy named james different boy no no i think it's the same boy no she says that boy's name is james and then he gets connected later on who says that boy's name is the girl the woman who loki goes to see Uh with the videotape she says i've played it out i believe that's a different boy no no, so well the way i look at the film is that that alex was barry that's why he's parked outside of the house no i know but but the boy's name is james who was taken Uh uh-huh not barry i don't know because holly says well holly says his, his name was jimmy or barry or something i can't remember which one alex yeah. Talking about Alex, Holly tells Keller, yeah, we took Alex was the first one we took. His name was Jimmy or, or Barry. I can't even remember. Al- so Barry Milland yes. was their first abduction, then Taylor was their second. But I believe... No, the- no, I'm saying Alex is the... Yeah, Alex is Barry. Alex is Barry. That's what I'm saying. No, but what I'm saying is when she's playing the tape back, she calls the boy James. Um, Does she? Pretty sure. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. 
I'm pretty sure. Hold on, let me she see calls him I, James. I'm pretty sure. Well, no, because Loki looks into the house and it says Barry Millen kidnapped, and that's why he goes to that woman's house. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think I'm getting confused. Yeah, with something else. I don't think I don't think anyone says the word James anywhere. You're James, <laughs> <laughs> but so Alex was Barry, and that's why Alex's RV. That's why he was parked outside of the house because it's the house that he first grew up in before his mom moved after his disappearance. So that's why Alex is parked there. And then at first, Loki's like, why was the RV parked outside this house? What's the, what does Alex being parked outside the house have to do with this kidnapped boy from 20 years ago who was never found again? None of it makes any sense. So that's another example of a piece of evidence that he doesn't understand until the, the finale of the film. I love that line that woman says, too. She says, no one took them. Nothing happened. They're just gone. Really intense. Yeah. And you can see that, I mean, she's not become a demon, but you can tell that she's probably lost her faith as well. So Holly and her husband's work worked out the first time. Loki has a great scene earlier in the film with Holly Jones after Alex has been released and after he whispers that line to Keller Dover and then Keller tells him to go talk to Alex. So he does, goes to Alex and Holly and he asks Holly to leave so that he can just talk to Alex alone. And he's talking to her, to him like, don't you love your aunt? You love your aunt, right? And he's like, yeah. And (laughs) he's like, he's warning her like, she could go to jail because of you if you don't tell us everything you know, basically. After everything she's done for you, you, do you really want something like that to happen to her? And you're just thinking about what's going on in Alex's head in this situation because everything that she's done for him has ruined his entire life, even though she's turned him into this incredibly loyal docile person child man who has no free will really just what's going on in his mind these things that loki's saying to him i think it's a really interesting conversation yeah absolutely there's another question that i remember getting dm'd a few times and seeing it in comments when we make clips about this film about why did joy say that keller was there and oh when she gets then she's at the hospital because when when joy escapes and she's found at the hospital and Keller shows up and she finally comes to and says that he was there and put tapes tape on our put tape on our mouths. She heard Keller when he went to see Holly when he said when he first went there to say, hey, I feel bad about uh, what happened to your nephew. I feel like it's my responsibility. I want to apologize. Really, Keller was trying to get a better grasp of Holly in Alex's home, probably looking for any kind of detail he could use. And so while he was there, the girls were tied up in the other room, and Holly brags about that. So they, the girls heard Keller. So that's why Joyce says you were there when she sees Keller in the hospital. I, I, I've seen a few people being confused about it just in sending us DMs and a bunch of comments thinking that Keller had something to do with it all. It's just because he was there while the girls were in the other room. They heard his voice. Maybe Joy even saw him through the crack of the door. But they're drugged up. They can barely grasp reality with all the drugs they're on whatever that drink has in it so that's why they didn't call for help that's why even though they saw keller or heard him didn't do anything because they probably couldn't even friggin move but she just barely came to consciousness when he was there that's why joyce says you were there that's a great point that a lot of people get confused about for sure when they're not when they're watching this especially for the first time and loki's path you know he's ironically the first time he goes to holly jo- jones's house he's looking at 
the answer to the solution, the answer to yeah. the problem. He's got his flashlight looking inside, what is that, the, a Pontiac, a, a Thunderbird or something? GT. The GT. Grand GTO? Grand Torino. I think it's a Pontiac Thunderbird, right? Something. Or Firebird. She says it in the film. Something. It's for sale if you want it. <laughs> what a bluff. <laughs> Not that anyone would want to buy it. She's a great liar. But he's looking in with the flashlight. He's looking into the answer to the solution. All he has to do is, you know, go forward in time and, and move the car. Yeah, and so in another thing that people might be questioned about questionable about is why did Keller do everything that Holly said? Why didn't he try to overpower her? Why was he kind of like just following her orders? That cocktail that she has everyone drink, it makes them very docile, she says, and it makes you basically high and numb and barely able to understand what's happening. And so it, it turns it turns Keller into kind of just like barely being able to use his strength or even think in a way. So all he can basically do is kind of follow orders. So that's why make you more manageable. Yeah, more manageable is what she says. So that's why he's like he does all, he doesn't try to fight back. And clearly he could overpower her, no problem. But that drink, whatever's in it, is a heavy dose of drugs. I just looked up. You're you're correct about it's Barry's mother with the videotape. I just must have heard something incorrectly. It's James. <laughs> I was like, who the fuck is James? <laughs> Nobody says James. <laughs> <laughs> There's still so many great things to talk about with this movie. I, I love the cinematography of the rain in this movie and the snow. Oh, yeah. You know, we were just talking about with The Last of Us on Monday, on this past Monday for the episode that was on Sunday. And, you know, they got so many great landscape shots of real snow. It's so rare these days to get, like, real snow and real rain in a movie. In this movie, the, the whole Thanksgiving sequence... It's real rain, daytime exteriors. Like that's not easy to do. You gotta like work fast, and you gotta be yeah. like, you gotta take advantage of the rain. And if if it stops, you're kind of screwed. So the filmmaking on making a forty six million dollar movie and using rain, real rain, is pretty tricky. Unless you're filming somewhere like Seattle, Pennsylvania gets plenty of rain. Northeast New England gets a lot of rain as well. But it's still like incredible filmmaking when you see stuff like that, as well as real snow. You could like people from uh, snowy regions they know what the hell real ice looks like what real snow ain't looks fooling like. us ain't fooling us they, we know what real snow looks like on streets on sidewalks after it's been paved after it's been frozen solid for a couple of days after cars have been driving on it Denis Villeneuve takes advantage of everything around him and that probably wasn't even in the script but just because it's the time of year they're shooting let's take advantage of these now snowy streets a couple of days after the rain I guarantee you that sh the scene where the three of them are running through the neighborhood and it's raining I guarantee you because they filmed that Clearly, it's all Steadicam handheld as opposed to everything else in the film. Real quick. I guarantee you they were running gunning that entire sequence, doing a couple of takes here and there of every setup. That's why it's the only thing that's Steadicam and handheld in the entire film. It looks terrific. It's yeah. real rain and because it can stop at any moment. That's why it's so hard to capture. And Loki driving with uh, the girl in the back seat through the rain snowstorm. Oh, my God. It just it just looks incredible. The, the snow blowing past us in the POV shots and then covering the windshield. There's just, you don't see, it's rare you see it in movies where it's like a blend of snow and rain. That's how you can tell it was real because it's not rain and it's not just snow. It's a combination of both. It's like that specific temperature where it's a little bit of both going on. And it, it just, I can't remember seeing that in another movie before, the snow and rain mixture. And I want to get to that tree shot before the kidnapping and what it symbolizes and the whole point of that push in which is like 25 seconds but i want to talk a little bit more about prisons 
because there are so many great prisons in this movie that you might not have noticed. I think one of my favorites happens in the first act before the kids get taken. It gets it's shown twice before the kidnapping during Thanksgiving. A hamster in a cage. There's two shots of the girls talking. The, the hamster in a cage is a great metaphor for the theme of the movie being prisons. There's there's this little hamster in a little prison. There's a reason why it's, it's pretty there. dark. There's a reason why it's there. <laughs> <laughs> Get me out of here. But then obviously so many real prisons, physical prisons are constructed in this film. Obviously Keller's apartment gets turned into a prison for Alex, as well as Holly Jones' grounds of her home becomes a prison. The home becomes a prison for the children, as well as that underground bunker becomes a prison for the kids, as well as Keller at the end of the film. Oh, absolutely. Tons of prisons. But then there's so many mental prisons. Yeah. Even the priest has his mental prison of his his addictions to alcohol and being a sex offender. And Holly's husband was eventually trapped and died in a prison in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And we can assume. It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and Keller is trapped in a prison at the end of the film. And the biggest question of this movie is did is Keller gonna be discovered by Loki? So that's why, our yeah, that's our most common question on Instagram. Why is it ambiguous? Why don't they answer the question at the end of the movie? Is Keller gonna be found by Loki? Can he hear the he heard the whistles? He looked over there a few times. It's up for you to decide. That's the whole point of the ending. It's ambiguous. You get to determine whether Loki's going to discover Keller. Obviously, Loki's a really intelligent guy. Nothing really gets past him. As, as long as it's staring him right in the face, obviously. This is something that is curious. He's going to investigate. I think he will discover Keller. Yeah, I, for me, I don't think there's a point for them to, to for Villeneuve to put that in there unless he didn't think that Loki found him. I think he just wanted to do it in an interesting way. And also, what really sells me on it is that the final whistle, Loki's... Because at first, Loki keeps looking back and turning and looking back and then... His eyes begin wandering, looking for the source of the sound. And then it looks like his eyeline at the last moment hits the car, like in the right exact spot where the sound is. That, for me, tells me that Loki's going to find him for sure. And, hey, maybe the script was a little longer. Maybe there was a sequence where he finds Keller. Well, the original the original ending is he doesn't find him. And then Keller was written to die unfound. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was, really? that was the real ending of the script. That's really interesting. Yeah, so Villeneuve changed it. It's better this way. Yeah, I, I love the ending. And I, the way I look at it, I've always looked at it as Loki finds Keller because he's too perceptive and too good at what he does for him not to realize that it's it's a whistle in there because he just heard about the whistle that earlier that day at the hospital. And so clearly he's going to make that connection. He's excellent at what he does. And for me, he finds Keller. Although Keller's going to get arrested, maybe most likely go to jail, but at least he's alive. Yeah, he's going to end up in prison in another real prison again. Yeah, but he's—I'm sure he's done everything. He's—he wouldn't regret what he's done. And even his wife says she thanks God for what Keller did. He did what he had to do, even though about a half hour earlier, she kind of blamed him, saying that you made me feel so safe and yeah, you yeah. let this happen. But now she's so grateful for him. We have a so that was the most common question on our Instagram. Okay, did he save him at the end? Uh, <laughs> Ethan Waters wrote, "Do they break out of prison?" I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But a good question is, do you have any theories about Loki's past from Jane Rosso? Yeah, I'm assuming he maybe he grew up in foster care or lost his parents at a young age. 
clearly has some trauma in his past because of his behavior and his inability to kind of be a social person outside of the job. He's very alone. He's very obsessed with his job. That's really all he cares about. And that's just my guess. But he's also really interesting because of his obsession with spirituality and religion. Yeah. Also, it seems like he definitely grew up in religious institutions because he says, you know how bad, like it would satisfy him to beat up the priest or arrest him. Um, so I'm, maybe he grew up in, in like yeah. a Catholic foster care. Yeah, in an orphanage or something. I'm guessing he grew up either with parents that he lost or he just never had parents. That's my guess. Yeah. And that's why I think he takes this case so personally. Probably. That's a, that's a really good point. Any other interesting questions before we get to the tree? Oh, yeah. What inspired this story is Detective Loki based on a real person from Alexander J. Berg. This story is a work of fiction. It is based, like we said, kind of loosely on the Loki Norsemith story that you mentioned earlier. It's just, yeah, it's completely fictional, though, not a real detective or anything. Um, any other questions, though? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, what was the point of David's character uh, from Elijah? We pointed that out talking about Bob Taylor for a bit. What parts of the movie are not in the script? The hammer sequence, I think, is the most notable part that isn't in the script that was all improvised. The design of Loki as well. Why? So Sienna Hendricks wrote, why do you think Jake felt the need to give his character a twitch? Was it anxiety-induced, do you think? Why do you think he put that into the character Probably something interesting. Maybe this, I mean, he doesn't sleep. He's 24-7, it seems like, on the job. So maybe it's an, a side effect of low sleep obsession with his job constantly looking for answers maybe it's a tick he's had since he's a child since he's been a kid and also like he's some he's someone who has like a on the surface he's very controlled but inside he's not and has a lot of turmoil and that could be like a, a manifestation of like him not being able to control himself completely in if he's in his physicality so that could be like moment like a moment of just him losing control for an instant here and there so that could be a a reason why he put it because I'm sure he didn't put it in just because like oh it'll look cool it has to have motivation for sure movie junkie wise it's so damn good honestly the scariest non-horror film I've ever seen it is terrifying on a first watch it is anxiety inducing thrilling suspenseful on the edge of your seat the whole time just because it's a great mystery and the filmmaking is so exceptional and again the, the the not knowing what direction is going to lead you down the right path and the constant muzzle puzzles and mazes <laughs> the muzzles that the characters are are in and trapped inside of is is so fascinating. Grayson Yunce wrote, "Why is Hugh pretty much Joel in this film? He is Joel from he, The Last of yeah, Us. Yeah, he could have played Joel at this time in his career. Hugh he, Hugh would have been a really yeah. good Joel. But you know, who, I was telling Anthony we talked about this before the episode. Actually, I said that Gerard Butler." would have been a great Joel for The Last of Us as well. Pedro's awesome. Yeah. But I think Gerard would have been a terrific Joel as well. But if they made The Last of Us 10 years ago, Jackman would have been excellent choice for the role. But TV, at this at this point yeah. in his career, 2013. Yeah, but actors, big actors weren't doing TV back no, then. No, not back not then. Not really. Seldom. Very seldom. Not really. <laughs> Kane the Barber, where do you rate this in Jackman's performances? Surely it's got to be top of the list. I think it's up there. It's It's like between this, The Prestige, The Fountain, he's really terrific in... Um, but I would say it's like one or two. He's a great actor. Yeah. I would put this in terms of performance. I think that emotionally it's his best. Although he, he does hit a lot of great heavy emotional beats in, in the fountain. But I still think actually thinking about it more, the prestigious performance is really fantastic. It's very layered and it's a very interesting character with a lot of complexities and nuances who goes through crazy amounts of transformation. So I would say... The character he plays, Angier, in 
the prestige is his best performance. Well, and especially when he's playing himself, but then yeah. he's also the actor who's playing himself yeah. as the actor supposed to be Robert Angier. And then he plays the new version of himself after he gets away with his crimes, and he plays Lord Korolov. He's got a lot yeah. of different kind of characterizations in that movie. I think that was like a dream job for him to play so many dynamic pieces of a one person. So and I, he did knock that out of the park. So I'd say the prestige is his most uh, complex yeah, performance. He was firing on all cylinders. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact about this film: Timothy Chalamet auditioned for a role. I'm guessing goes for Keller's son. Also, possibly. Mark, so yeah. 2013, same time yeah. as uh, Interstellar, Interstellar 2014, same ageish. Yeah. Also, Villeneuve was clearly very aware of him when he was making Dune, keeping him. He was his first choice, probably because he went through an auditioning process with Chalamet. He saw his cho- his acting chops in person, and then call me by your name. He's like he's gonna be he's gonna be uh, Paul Trades. Yeah, that's yeah. what he saw. He didn't even have to audition. And then also Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale were originally t- attached to star in this film with Brian Singer directing, but the two actors opted to make the fighter instead. Though Wahlberg still received an executive producer credit on this film, this film was actually in production hell for a very long time. It hit the 2009 blacklist for screenplays. And so it was in development for many years until it was finally picked up by Villeneuve at Warner Brothers and they got into production. Leo was attached to it at some point, Leonardo DiCaprio. He's attached he, to everything he, at some point. That's yeah, true. <laughs> All right. You got any more fun facts or should we get to the tree? Let's get to the tree, man. So the tree, this shot we're talking about, it happens pretty early. It happens after the enjoyable family sequences where we feel very safe as an audience. Everything's warm and bright and everyone's having fun and laughing and eating food and getting drunk and playing the trumpets and having a good time. It just feels like a normal Thanksgiving. Football's on the TV. Attention to detail is exceptional in this film. Now, then we go outside. This is after the girls were playing on the RV with their older brother and older sister. And Denis Villeneuve just gets this like 20-second slow pushing of this this thick tree outside the house of the birches and pushes in, pushes in until eventually these two trees basically engulf almost the entirety of the frame. And a lot of people might be like, what is the point of this? But I think it really perfectly captures the tonal shift of the film at this point for sure. Because then after this tree the shot, kids are missing. Kids are missing. Yeah. Where are they? Have you seen your sisters? Like where did they not come get you? Now she hits the fan completely changing the tone and the atmosphere of the film and cinematography but this shot just really brilliantly captures the new mood and tone of the film going forward and trees are actually like a very common visual motif in the film another one of my favorite shots is keller after he has that difficult conversation with his son and he leaves the house and he gets into his truck he gets inside the truck and he turns the car on but he doesn't start the engine we just we just hear the tape playing of religious dialogue of some kind uh and and we're outside of the car looking through the passenger seat window and keller's in the car and reflected on the glass of the window is the tree behind us the barren branches spiraling all over chaotically and it's reflected with keller inside of the chaos of these crazy mangled branches it's just a perfect depiction of the chaos that he has found himself in. As well as the tree branch that flies into the windshield when Alex Jones crashes crashes his car, his RV, at the gas station. You can even argue that as a contractor, as a carpenter, Keller using wood from trees to make the prison for Alex and the shower is tied to the use of trees and the motif of trees in this movie as well. Franklin is Franklin's family. Their surname, their surname is Birch. Birch. 
Birch tree. Great point. So many fucking trees. It opens <laughs> with trees. It opens with a shot of trees as we track backwards and reveal Keller and his son with the orange jackets hunting and they shoot that deer. So trees are all of I love the trees. I love trees. Trees are trees are great. Trees are tight. <laughs> They're pretty dope. But it is a, a, a very common visual motif in the film. And I actually have a, a great quote from an interview with IndieWire about Denis Villeneuve, about what the point of the shot was and how on production, on set, all the producers are like, what the hell are you doing wasting your time for almost two hours getting the shot of a tree? We got A-list actors and trailers <laughs> right now. So Denis Villeneuve was asked about it. He said, they're kind of like ghost characters he's talking about trees. They're always there, at least in the background. Each scene, you can feel their presence and they are linked with this idea of necessary violence. We're always trying to express things with as few shots and saying on the surface as little as possible, talking about it with Roger Deakins. And this is how they got the shot and what they came up with with that tree. This shot was designed not to be understood, but to be felt. It has a subconscious feeling that can vibrate in your soul. It functions like a dread, an omen. It's like when you suddenly have a bad feeling, but you don't understand what it means. It's linked with intuition. I bet he doesn't get questioned on set anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but the cinematography, again, it's just stellar. And we talked about earlier the prisons that Roger Deakins, as a cinematographer with the production design and the team, putting the characters in boxes, whether it's inside of a building, inside of a window, inside of a door frame, inside of a windshield, inside of a car, characters constantly inside boxes or in prisons, whether it's mental or physical in the film, shown thematically with the actions and dialogue and situations, but also physically with the shots they get. It's all intentional. It's all, all intentional. All intentional. It's big time. Big, yeah, kid, big time. Lots of trees. <laughs> <laughs> Also, snakes and serpents being a, a theme of this film. The serpent is the symbol of the devil. Obviously, that was used as the drug we talked about earlier, possibly for the venom and the concoction that Holly and her husband used to yeah. use to make their victims drink and become more manageable and yeah. kill them eventually. Grace and Joy are very religious names. Yeah. Grace and Joy. Yeah. You'll hear them in religious songs all the time. And, you know, Mary. Mary. Is someone named Mary in this? Yeah. Keller's wife. Her name is I'm Mary? I'm Keller's mother. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Grace, Joy, Mary. Yeah. What's his son's name? Ralph. Not religious. <laughs> <laughs> I can never remember his name in this. Ralph. Got you, got you bro. That's what I'm here Ralph for. Ralph Keller. Um, you got anything else, man? No, I'm I'm solid. I love this film. I think yeah. it's a, a perfect movie and one of the more underrated thrillers of the last decade. Well, thank you all so much for tuning into our review of Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners. Be sure to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Thank you so much. It's the best way to support the show. If you're a patron, we appreciate you so much. And again, to be part of the Discord of Raiders of the Lost Podcast, you got to at least be in that $10 tier, but there's still also $2, $5, as well as $25 and $100 tiers. It's the best way to support the show. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in again, and take care. See you next time. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.